Well, good morning. Uh, it is indeed a privilege uh, to be with you, uh, as always, uh, when uh, one gets the opportunity, undeserved as it always is, uh, to open up the Word of God, which I'm really pleased to do with you today, but also to be here because of uh, the affection that we have for Matt and Leslie, not least because we share two of the most cutest grandsons on the planet. I know you think yours are, but ours really are. Um, so we're really glad to be here. We're glad to uh, be able to serve you and serve them in uh, giving this little uh, reprieve to be able to handle the pulpit. I was thinking as we were just concluding our singing, which I, I was very grateful for, uh, those last two lines that we sang, uh, you are forever mine, you are forever mine. I wonder if you pause for a second to think about what that means to say to the God who created, sustains, rules all things, you are forever mine. It's true. It would not be true had he not said it was true. And he not condescended to make it true. So as I was singing that with you, I was just thinking what an amazing statement of grace that is for us to be able to say that. And I think, I hope that as we get into the text of Scripture today and walk through this message that perhaps that will become more vivid for us. It's just what an amazing statement that is. So if you have your Bible and you have it open to Isaiah chapter 6, would you come with me there uh, for a few moments this morning? We're going to look at verses 1 to 7. You're perhaps used as you hear this preached or you've read it. We tend to camp on verse 8 in Isaiah's uh, call. We're not going to get that far today, but you'll, it'll be in your, in your mind, I'm sure, as we, uh, as we read these, this text together. So would you please listen? Because this really is nothing less than the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. If you're old enough, you will perhaps remember it. Perhaps if you're a little younger, you will have seen images of it. It was Tuesday morning. Our family was getting ready for the day. The phone rang. My mom said, turn on the TV. I said, why? What's going on? She said, something's happening in New York. It was, of course, September 11, 2001. We turned on the television and we saw those horrific images of those two towers burning. And as they collapsed a few minutes later, the world as we had known it crumbled with those towers. Every preacher in the country 
had to prayerfully consider that Sunday, what am I going to preach on? I went to Isaiah chapter 6. Because it gives the people of God a God-centered vision for a crumbling world. It's been a long time since that catastrophe, but the world as we have known it is not the way it was. In more recent years, the crisis has been cultural as the morals of our society have begun to distort and to crumble beyond recognition. Our world has become an increasingly risky place for the people of God who desire to live according to the will of God. Well, it was in just such a moment that God gave Isaiah a life shattering and life-giving vision to equip him for life and to equip him for mission in the world. And this morning, by paying attention to that vision, we're going to learn this life-transforming reality. If you take nothing else away, here's what you take away this morning. When your world is crumbling, you need a renewed vision of God, exalted in majesty and excellent in mercy. That's the vision that equips you for life and equips you for mission as God's people in a crumbling, risk-heavy world. When your world is crumbling, you need a vision of God, exalted in majesty and excellent in mercy. This morning, I want to invite you to see three dimensions of this vision with me. Three dimensions. First, see God exalted in majesty. Second, see our sin before God. And then third, see God excellent in mercy. First, let's see God exalted in majesty. If your Bible's still open, look at verses 1 to 4. In that year, King, then in that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Here's what you need to know this morning. Uzziah was the great king who led Jerusalem for decades until pride got the better of him. The Old Testament tells us that during Uzziah's reign, he went to war against the nations that threatened Judah. And he was so strong that he became a power in the region and extended Israel's borders. He fortified Judah's defenses, he built an impressive military, and he increased their natural resources. He was a king who did what kings were supposed to do. He prospered and he protected the nation. And Judah enjoyed the benefits of his rule for 52 years. But, as leaders do, when Uzziah got strong, he became proud, and he reached out for an office that God had not given to him. And God judged him. And he spent his closing years in isolation as a leper, and the nation began to decline. At the same time as that, a new superpower was on the horizon in the Middle East, taking over the Middle East. Its name was Assyria. Now, what you need to know is this, that when Assyria rolled over a nation, they did the kinds of things that CNN warned you about before you show you the footage. Think Bukha, Ukraine. Think Taliban. Think ISIS. In the year that King Uzziah died, Assyria is camped on Judah's doorstep. 
The great, prospering, protecting king is gone. Corruption is on the rise in the nation. The culture is in decline. And there is an absolutely terrifying threat to national security sitting on the front door. Those are the headlines in the year that King Uzziah died. So God provides His prophet a vision who is, of who is really on the throne. The vision is designed to remind Isaiah and us who really is the king. You notice how it begins. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Then down in verse 5, he interprets it this way. My eyes have seen the king. Here's what's happening. When God's people were living in the midst of headlines like those, God gave them a vision of himself as excellent in majesty. If you go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and you see a great portrait, you stop. You notice the details, the, perhaps the, the brush strokes, the shading. Well, you're going to take your time because you paid, I think it's 25 bucks to get in. So you're going to pay attention to it. You want to see everything that the artist brought to life in his vision. Well, if you want to be equipped for life and mission in our world, you have to linger in front of this portrait. You have to linger in front of the details of this glorious vision. And we're going to do that for just a minute. Notice that Isaiah records, I saw the Lord, Adonai. That means master. That means owner. That's a title that goes to the one who has absolute power and the legal right to do whatever he pleases. You notice that the throne was high and it was lifted up. In other words, it's higher than any other throne. The train of his robe, the one who sat on the, that throne, filled the temple. Maybe you've Watch the first couple of seasons of that series, The Crown, and you notice the coronation ceremony of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. Do you know that she wore no less than three robes through that entire ceremony? And maybe you notice at the end that she goes out with that great long robe, that majestic robe behind her. It was 20, 21 feet long. It took 3,500 hours of needlework to, to, to fashion it. And the whole purpose is that when she walks out of Westminster Abbey with that robe behind her, you go, Her Majesty. The robe of the one who sat on the throne filled the entire temple. There is no more majesty beyond His Majesty. The power of His presence is seen, it's felt. The foundations of that great temple in Jerusalem shake. The doors shake and the whole place is filled with smoke. And at the center of the vision is the absolute master of everything and everyone and of all, engulfing the room in His majesty and royalty as the smoke fills the building. But there's more. There's the circle of the king's attendants. Think of a royal court with pages and servants. They're waiting and they're scurrying, scurrying to do the bidding of their sovereign. This king is so magnificent. This king is so excellent that notice who the attendants in his court are. They're angelic beings, seraphim. We're not told how many there are in the court around the throne, but these angelic beings, these majestic angelic beings are humbled in awe at the presence of the Lord. They cover their face, a sign of humility, and their, and their feet, a sign of reverence. With two of their wings, they still fly. 
a symbol of their readiness to do the bidding of their master. So here's the point. So exalted is this one who is on the throne that his servants are magnificent angelic creatures who bow in awe of him and humility before him. And they perpetually praise the Lord. As we listen in on their praise, it tells us about the one who sits on the throne. They praise Him in three ways. Almighty, as holy, and as universal. Notice the title. The Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth. You remember Luther's hymn? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Sabaoth means hosts. The great gathered force, the regiments of angels in heaven. That's the title that David used when he took on the giant, Goliath. He said, you come to me with sword and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, Sabaoth, God of the armies of Israel. That title is used 62 times in Isaiah. And coming from the lips of the beings, this title declares that whatever armies exist, whatever armies exist, in heaven or on earth, the Lord is almighty over them. So that means what? Well, it means the great Uzziah, who you relied on for your protection and prosperity, was not the almighty commander. The terrifying hosts who are amassing at your doorstep are not ultimately in command. The forces of nature, the angels, the spiritual beings, Presidents and their policies, foreign terrors, dictators, and their armies are not almighty. He is. But He's not only almighty, He's holy. See, if He was almighty, that would be of limited comfort if He was capable of corruption or evil. He'd just be like the superstitious pagan idols of the nations around them. Unreliable, fickle, vindictive, unjust. But the Lord on the throne is entirely, get this, we just never, we never see this in human relationships. He is entirely separate from the corruption and contamination of evil and sin. He's entirely separate from moral weakness or compromise. He is infinitely, impeccably complete in purity. He is holy and He's that to extreme perfection. He is holy, holy, holy. The words of Lewis's little tale in Narnia come to mind. One of the children asks about the great lion, Aslan, who is the rightful ruler, and she says, is he quite safe? To which the reply is, safe? Safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. The King Almighty is good. He's holy. And then notice he's universal. The great angelic praise says, the whole earth is full of His glory. Remember the first time I ever heard this text preached, it was by J.I. Packer. I don't know if you would know who he was, but J.I. Packer was in the 1990s, one of the great biblical theologians in the Christian world. If you ever saw or heard Packer preach, you know there wasn't much by way of dynamic going on. He stood there as he preached like the Oxford professor that he was, his eyes straining to see and he would just expound the text, occasionally making a gesture as he wanted you to get something. And when Packer opened up this text, when he was done after about 45 or 50 minutes, nobody moved. 
And when he opened up this declaration about the whole earth is full of his glory, he used this word. He described it as God's ubiquity. That the Lord is present everywhere, all the time, all at once. That means, hear this, he's not like the pagan gods. He's not limited. There's not a territory. There's not a zone. There's not a region. There's not a crevice. There's not a crack. There's not a corner where this king doesn't reside and rule. God, in his brilliance and power and majesty, is everywhere present even though sinful human beings suppress the fact and deny it and rebel against Him, even though they can go to Yellowstone and look at the majesty and deny it, that He's revealed in His creation. The whole earth is full of His glory. So that's the vision that God gives in the year that King Uzziah died. In the midst of that news cycle, in that crumbling culture, we need to see God exalted in majesty. And my friends, if you see it, there's going to be a response. And believe it or not, it won't be good. God is for us and not for them. If we see Him truly as we ought our first response will be to deal seriously with our own sin. And that's the second point I want you to see this morning. We've seen God exalted in majesty. Now we need to see our sin. Look at verse 5, if you would. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I get this. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Do you remember, if you've watched the documentaries or maybe you watched it on TV, do you remember the images of the people on that day in 2001? When they looked up and saw what was happening in those... The shock. The terror. This vision was life-shattering for Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am lost. Lost doesn't quite capture the sense of devastation. The word lost means utterly ruined, doomed, made to cease. The old translation called it undone. This is a cry of calamity, terror. This is it. It's all over. I'm done for. This is the cry of a soul that is shattered, scandalized by the sense of its own guilt. You know, we can become good at being affronted at the sins of people out there. Those people. It's easy to spend much of our time with the sense of our own righteousness talking about the corruption that is so obvious in other people. But if we are not confronted with our own sin, if we're not shattered by it, all of our pontificating and our judgments might just have more to do with our self-righteousness than it does to do with the sensitivity to the majesty of God. The vision of God's majesty for Isaiah was shattering with the sense of his own sin. Now just hang on. Notice the sin that his soul was so scandalized by. We might be tempted to go, wait a minute, isn't he overreacting just a little bit? I am a man of unclean lips. Really? It's not sort of your typical headline-making sin, is it? He doesn't go, woe is me, I'm an adulterer. 
He doesn't go, woe is me, I'm a murderer. He doesn't say, woe is me, I'm a thief. I'm undone in the presence of this God because I'm a man of unclean lips. What does that mean? Was Isaiah a potty mouth? Was he a gossip? Was he a grumbler? Those would all mean that he had unclean lips. Just for a second with me, just listen for for a second to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 28 to 32, where the Apostle Paul tells us what it is that brings out the wrath of God. Notice what he says, upon which God sets his wrath. Romans 1, 28, just listen. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Watch this. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God means blasphemers, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now listen to this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Not, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Listen. Please hear me. The holy, holy, holy one who sits upon the throne of the universe takes culturally acceptable sins of our lips far more seriously than we do. But we do actually get a clue into what Isaiah's particular problem was when he says this, I live amongst a people of unclean lips. What could that mean? Well, Isaiah chapter 29, 13 tells us about the lips of God's people. Just listen. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. What does that mean? People were faking it with God. They were flapping their lips in the service of God when their hearts were not actually God's. And like the rest of God's people, Isaiah was saying the right things without giving God the worship of his heart. He was an externally religious phony. And the the disclosure of God's majesty exposed it and dismantled it. So could I just say this to you this morning? If you're going through the motions of religion on the outside and you're keeping on the inside from the Lord of hosts, my friend, you're playing chicken with God. And it's a game that one day will leave you completely undone. Phony religious lip service is unfit for God's presence, as is any other sin, as we heard in Romans chapter 1. The high-definition sins or the low-grade tolerated sins. Maybe another way to look at it is this. We just don't take any of our sins seriously enough. Let me ask you a question R.C. Sproul used to ask. How many of your sins are deserving of death? All of them. Every single one. But what we do is we diminish. We deflect. We defend. We deny. Because we do not see the exalted majesty of the one whose glory fills the whole earth and fills the private places and corners of our life. Let me ask you a question. Is the holy, holy, holy 
Lord, exposing anything unclean in your, pre- unclean in your life in his presence today. If he is, there's really good news. Because Isaiah's vision wasn't only life-shattering. Notice with me, it was life-giving. Because he shows us not only God's exalted majesty and not only our sin, but he also shows us God's excellent mercy. Last two verses, verses 6 to 8, let's see God's excellent mercy. Back to Isaiah chapter 6 and listen to what he says. Then... One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. See, when we're confronted by the scandal of our sin, we tend to do one of two things. This is a sinner by experience talking. Here's what we do. On the one hand, we tell ourselves the devastation that we feel over the sense of sin is just the baggage that we all carry, and we need to see God as a little more therapeutic than majestic. A loving God understands, and He doesn't condemn anybody. There's really nothing that needs to be done for us to deal with our, to be welcome in God's presence. What we really need to do is understand that we're all already welcome anyway. Here's the other thing we might do. We try to deal with the scandal of our soul by thinking we can perform rituals for God. We multiply religious rules. We multiply religious routine so we can clean ourselves up enough to stand in God's presence. I remember the old movie, uh, The Mission. Did you ever see that old movie, The Mission, with Robert De Niro? And Robert De Niro in this scene has killed his own brother. And he thinks what he's got to do is pay for his guilt. And so there's this great scene in the mission where he's climbing up the rocks on a waterfall and his bare hands and bare feet with all of his armor strapped to his back because he thinks he's got to pay for his own sin. Torturing himself to purge the guilt he feels before God. We can do that in all sorts of ways. I'm going to deal with my unclean lips by being a religious rigorist. God takes neither of these approaches to Isaiah. He doesn't say, no, 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 you misunderstand me. You're not lost, poor chap. He doesn't say, you can avoid all this doom if you can just simply figure out how to climb up the stairs on your knees and lift yourself up to my throne. He doesn't do that. Watch what happens. What does God do? God Himself deals with Isaiah's uncleanness. He deals with Isaiah's undoneness. He sends one of his servants, a seraph, to the altar. And he takes away Isaiah's guilt and sin. Through his servant, this is amazing, that's why we could sing what we did before the the sermon. Through his servant, the majestic king himself stoops and provides exactly what the unclean man needs to live in the king's presence. See, the stone that came from the altar symbolized sacrifice that had already been made for Isaiah's religious fakery and all the other sins that he'd been forgiven of. When, he, when that touched his lips, his hypocrisy was erased. Taken away. No longer on the books before God. That's what it means forgiven. Because God Himself, the Almighty, met Isaiah's need. Here's what I need to tell you this morning. There's even better news than that. Like the rest of the Old Testament system and sacrifices, this was just a pointer. It was preparation for the moment 
when God Himself would come down and meet the need of shattered souls in sin. The Gospel of John tells us that it was actually the eternal Son of God whom Isaiah saw in glory. As John tells Jesus' story in John chapter 12, he tells us this, Isaiah said these things because he saw His, Jesus, glory, and he spoke of Him. What Isaiah was seeing was the Son of God. And in the plan of God, in the fullness of time, it was not an angel of God who came from the heavenly throne. It was the Son of God. And He provided not a stone from the altar, but His own life and His own blood on a cross. And God accepted His sacrifice as the final finished sacrifice for sins. And it's by His blood and His once for all sacrifice that our guilt is forever taken away. Listen to two amazing portions of Scripture. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin that in him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified declared righteous acquitted accepted by God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You see what happens? God meets Isaiah's need. God meets the sinner's need. And when in the fullness of time, it's not an angel who comes from the throne of God. It's the Son of God who comes from the throne of God. And He takes not an altar from the, a, a stone from the altar. He puts His own life on the cross and He dies and He bleeds under the wrath of God for every person who would ever believe in Him. So that in Him, our guilt is taken away. So that in Him, we become holy. So that in Him, God declares us legally righteous and justified. So, if you're undone by seeing God exalted in majesty, you need to see His excellent mercy in Jesus Christ. Let Him touch you. Let Him cleanse you. Let Him remove your guilt by simply believing in Jesus. Turn from sin. Trust the Son who came, who died and who is now raised as the exalted Lord. And friends, if we already believe in Him, if we know we're already declared righteous, if we're already set apart holy in Him, we need to turn from trusting personalities. We need to turn from trusting powers of this world to keep our world together. By the mercy of God, because of the mercy of God, if we know Christ, we need to take our life and present it as a living sacrifice in His service, according to His will, in the world He's called us to live in. When your world is crumbling, you need a vision of God, exalted in majesty and excellent in mercy. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, you are holy. 
holy, holy. How unsearchable are your ways. Uh, God, if you had not revealed yourself in creation, if you had not revealed yourself through your word, if you had not revealed yourself finally through your son, we would not know you. We would be left in the dark. We would be stumbling around, making up religion from our superstitions. But you are, you are there, and you have spoken. Lord, you are excellent in your majesty, beyond what we can, with our words, describe. You are excellent in your mercy, beyond what we can be, begin to comprehend in Jesus. Lord, we would pray that if there would be one person in the sound of the hearing of this message this morning who as yet does not know Jesus Christ, that you would send your spirit and give a new heart and give faith to see and believe in Jesus. And Lord, we would pray for each and every one whom you have reached and united to Christ, oh, oh Lord, you would show us where we depend on people, we depend on others, we depend on institutions, we depend on ourselves other than you. And Lord, would you turn our hearts and deepen our trust in you. And then, Lord, I pray that from this church there might be those who you would call, who would see your majesty, taste your mercy, and therefore say, Lord, here am I. Your servant, send me. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And God's people say, Amen.